places as well. But allow me first to read our text and then pray, and then we will, um, we're going to do some preliminary work, if you will. And so, so Psalm 1, the word of the Lord says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you again for the opportunity that you have given us to open your word as your church. And to have confidence that in it you speak to us, God, and to have confidence that your Spirit uses it in our lives to shape us and mold us into who you want us to be, Lord, to truly build us for eternity. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to think clearly about this passage, to look at what's going on around us and what's going on in our own lives through the lens of this passage, God. And Lord, that as a result of that, we would be people that thrive in Christ Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said a moment ago, this, this morning I want us to, uh, to prayerfully consider, to spend time in uh, Psalm 1. And one of the reasons why I think that it's important for us to uh, do that uh, as a church is because I don't want us, I, I don't want Deer Park Fellowship Um, to uh, take on a defeatist posture when we look around at what is going on in our society. I I truly don't want those of you who call Deer Park Fellowship home to be a despairing people. Instead, uh, I want us collectively uh, to live happy lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as many of you know by now, I don't think that we should shy away from that word happy as Christians. I just think we need to be careful about where we hang our happiness and what we mean when we say the word happy. And I think that Psalm 1 uh, speaks to that for us. But before we get to Psalm 1, just allow me to summarize the state of things for us. And by the state of things, I mean the state of what we observe, the state of what we experience, the state of what we hear about on a daily basis that can cause us anxiety or that can cause us despair. We live in a land and in a time and under the governance of those uh, that can and should be described with the words that we see in Psalm 1, words like ungodly, words like sinners, words like scornful. We just celebrated Thanksgiving this past Thursday, and perhaps there are those of you that found it difficult to find something to be thankful for 
You know, maybe you look around and you survey what's going on around you and everything you see seems to be dark. In fact, this is a, a, the conversation that I have with lots of people, ongoing conversations that I have with lots of people. People are concerned not just about the state of the country, but the state of our world, right? Wickedness that rivals that seemingly of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Wars and conflict and unnecessary suffering, right? We could fill this up with, with so many things. We could all point to different things that concern each of us, and these things are concerning, right? They're not trivial matters that we're pointing to that we're paying attention to. And as I've been thinking through our text this morning, and as I've been giving particular attention to what I see going on in our society at large, I've sought to describe some of what I see using biblical language. When we can describe things biblically, we can see things more clearly. And as I've sought to do that, uh, there are two words uh, that uh, came to my mind. And the, the, the first word that, that came to my mind is the word rage. It's the word rage. And, and I don't think us seeing that word in the very next psalm is by happenstance. The psalmist asks the question in Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the nations what? Rage and the people plot a vain thing. Again, Psalm 2, verse 1. So when I look at the nations, right, when I see things that are going on around the world, that word rage, it comes to my mind along with the question of the psalmist. Right? Why is there so much commotion? Right? Why are things so tumultuous? And what does it mean? What does it all mean? And how should I process it? And how should I live in the midst of it? And the other word that comes to my mind is the word wrath. We have rage and we have the word wrath. And, and not just the wrath that we see image bearers inflict upon other image bearers, but more so, I mean, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. We see this in Psalm 2 as well starting with verse 4 on down to verse 6. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his what? Wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. At the laughter of God in this passage, it's a sign of, of judgment on the nations that rage against him, because ultimately all rage is rage against God. And the Lord speaks to the raging nations with the language of wrath. Now, what are some concrete characteristics of raging nations under the wrath of God? Well, we, we see a concrete description in Romans chapter 1, in Paul's letter to the Roman church, and it's well worth us considering that before we get to Psalm 1. So keep a finger on Psalm 1 and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 21, and then I'm going to just summarize the rest, okay? So starting with verse 18, 
for the what of God? Wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for He has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So stop there first. All right, we, we see that, that God's wrath is evident in the fact that men suppress what is true, not because what's true isn't obvious, right? They suppress what's true because of unrighteousness, right? Because of ungodliness. And what's the first lie that man willingly believes? Right? The first lie is that he should not worship the triune God alone. Right? The first lie is that he should not give thanks to the Lord, that he shouldn't be grateful to the Lord, that he shouldn't glorify God. Right? This man, he, he mutters, if you will, what do I have to be thankful for? What do I have to be thankful for? If there is a God, right, he has a lot of explaining to do. Right? This is rage. This is wrath. Now, keep looking in Romans 1 with me for a moment. Because from there, right, when man rejects the, the triune God and refuses to give him thanks and honor and glory, we see a, a whole host of other things that follow from the rejection of the one true God. Right? We see that those who reject, those who rage against the Lord, and again, this is at the same time, evidence of one being under the wrath of God, but they think that they have it all figured out, right? Verse 22, they're wise in their own eyes, right? We see that they fashion God, or perhaps they would use the phrase higher power, whatever they call it, into their own image, verse 23. They have an insatiable lust for more, particularly as it relates to sexual immorality. In fact, their obsession with sexual immorality, which includes unnatural sexual immorality, is evidence that they worship themselves, that they've made themselves God, right? They define sexual ethics because in their view, they are God, right? They define male and female or redefine it because in their view, they are God and they have the authority to do so. There's no God above them, right? Verses 24 to 26 of Romans 1. And another characteristic is that of a debased mind, which literally means a mind that is reduced in quality, right? When you wonder how some people can do such heinous acts, right, it's because they have debased minds. It's because they are under the wrath of God, verse 28. We see as well that those who rage and those who are under God's wrath, they're wicked, they're covetous, they're malicious, they're full of envy, they are murderers, there's constant strife, they are deceitful. The NKJ, uh, NKJV says that they are whisperers, which is plotters or slanderers or gossips. They hate God 
They are violent. They are braggers. They're proud. They set their minds to invent more evil. They dishonor their parents. They're disobedient to their parents. They lack discernment. They aren't trustworthy. They're unloving, and there's no such thing as forgiveness, right? Just cancel culture. There's no mercy. We see that verses 29 to 31. And they do all of this while knowing, knowing the righteous judgment of God, because the law of God is written on what? Our hearts, right? But they do it anyways, and they call wickedness good, and they encourage others. We can even say they want to force others to acknowledge the rightness of their wickedness, rage and wrath. Rage and wrath. Does that sound familiar to you? Right. And as Christians, we, we need to see this. We need to have eyes for this. We need to acknowledge that we live in a time that's characterized by rage and wrath. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that this is nothing new. It's nothing new. We don't live in a unique time. And the fact that we can open our Bibles and see this kind of stuff should tell us that the proclivities of the human heart are nothing new. And God's wrath poured out on unrighteousness is nothing new. Now, one more place I want to take us, and then we're going to begin to work through Psalm 1. Turn over quickly, Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. Verses 7 and 8, right? Jeremiah, as he sees and experiences the wrath of God poured out on Judah for their idolatry, for their wickedness, Jeremiah, he prophesies this, starting with verse 7. Again, verses 7 and 8. Blessed, which is a significant word that I'll bring to your attention in a moment. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be plant he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. Right Judah under the wrath of God, through their being taken captive in Babylon, right? That's what, that's what we're seeing here. They're under the wrath of God through their being taken captive in Babylon. And I, and I think that we live in a day and age which can be characterized as Babylon. And we see familiar language in Jeremiah's prophecy, right? We see the language of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1. And that's where I want us to turn back now. So you can begin to turn back there now. But I love the imagery. In a, in a day of anxiety, in a day of despair, uh, despair is such a temptation, isn't it? But I love the imagery that in the midst of rage, in the midst of wrath, right, we see Jeremiah and we see the psalmist speak of a tree, right? They say that a man that trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by the waters whose roots go deep into the river and in the midst of a drought, right? In, in the midst of something like a massive fire where it seems like everything around you is burning down, the man who trusts in the Lord doesn't fear, right? He's like a tree 
whose leaf stays in season. He isn't anxious when it seems like there's a massive famine. He isn't concerned that things around him are going to dry up because he drinks. And, and what does he drink from? He drinks from the living water. Quote, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? Jesus speaking in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. And so the stage is set for us, right? A, a fire going on all around us. How do we not wither? In other words, how do we thrive in Babylon? Or how does, what does the man or woman or child who drinks from the living water, what do they look like in the midst of everything going on around us? So again, turn back to Psalm 1 with me. Let's consider first verse 1, the first part here. Blessed is the man, right? We see Jeremiah talk about one being blessed, right? And Already the psalmist there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is indicating for us that there is a way for one to be considered blessed on this side of eternity, even in the midst of a Babylon. And that Hebrew word that's translated as blessed, it literally means, oh, the happiness. Oh, the happiness. And I love that. And this is one of the reasons I think Christians can and should reclaim the word happiness or happy. And what does it tell us? By telling us happy is the man or oh, the happiness of a man. It tells us that a sulky, bitter, defeated Christian is a contradiction. It's a contradiction. Right? I've said this before, but Christianity isn't I'm miserable for 60 or 70 years and then I go get to be happy. No. Right? Our hope in the living water, who is Christ, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He is the driver of the blessed life. And He energizes the happy life in the here and now, despite the fallenness of this world, despite the rage of the nations. And again, and I'm not talking about happy Happiness in, in the sense of, of, of it being hung on our circumstances, right? I'm talking about a, 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 a happiness that is fixed in the triune God. One commentator says that the psalmist using this word blessed, he's using it as an exclamation of strong emotion, okay? and, and it, and it, but it's not a, a fleeting emotion. Again, it's, not, it's not like a roller coaster in the way that we tend to think about emotions. There's an anchor here to what the psalmist is talking about. It is a strong emotion firmly fixed. It is an abiding emotion despite what happens to you in life. This isn't prosperity gospel, right, which is a false gospel. This is an abiding emotion in which one finds their happiness in our unchanging, good, sovereign triune God. Now, we hear about the blessed life, don't we? All right, we, we see that on t-shirts. Right? We hear people say that they are blessed. We see it in hashtags on 
social media, but what does it actually mean to live the blessed life? Look back at our text. Starting again, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And if you're taking notes, and kids, if you're taking notes, I know I don't have these takeaways printed for you, but point one, right? thriving in Babylon looks like not tolerating sin in your life. Thriving in Babylon looks like not tolerating sin in your life. I've spent a considerable amount of time in my sermon <clears throat> this morning talking about what we see in our society. But here is what I found so common in the local church. We mourn the state of our society, yet we tolerate sin in our own life. Right? We mourn the, the sins of our society, yet we tolerate sin in our own life. C.S. Lewis, he warned that when we become hyper-focused on societal sins, we often do so to ignore the sins that we personally need to repent of. Yes, we live in a raging nation. Yes, there is clear evidence that we are under the wrath of God. And it's good for us to, to speak to this. It's good for us to have clarity on this, but as I pointed out the sins in Romans chapter 1 a minute ago, did you only think about them out there, or did you consider the state of your own soul? Right? There's a way in which we go about tolerating sin in our own lives, and I think here in Psalm 1, the psalmist nails it. There's a progression in our text. Did you notice the progression in the passage that I read? First, according to the psalmist, we walk by the counsel of the ungodly. We walk by the counsel of the ungodly. Instead of taking another route altogether and staying as far away as we can, we just pass by. We just pass by. What's the harm in just hearing what they have to say? Right? Are, are you a Christian that finds the counsel of the ungodly desirable? Right? Do you give the, the benefit of the doubt to that type of counsel? Is it your way of staying perhaps informed? Right? This is a, a lack of hating sin at the temptation level. Right? We, we all know those ways, those circumstances that we put ourselves in, which can lead to unnecessary temptations. Right? We know those things that, that we can take in, the counsel that we can take in that begins to shape us and shape a worldview and a behavior that's antithetical to the gospel. Right? Maybe it's what you set before your eyes. Maybe it's what you read. Maybe it's what you listen to. Maybe it's the influence of someone that shouldn't be influencing you. Right? Whatever or whoever it is, you're treating it as neutral counsel. Right? No harm in passing by, but in reality, it's ungodly, and it's not what the blessed man does. It's not what the blessed man does, but that's not where the road ends. Right? There's a lingering that occurs. Right? We're no longer walking by the counsel of the ungodly, but then we begin to stand with them. Right? We stand with sinners. We stop moving because something in us 
right? Something that perhaps we've nurtured secretly wants to linger, wants to not just pass by, but to stop and entertain ourselves, to keep company of sinners. And by that, the psalmist doesn't have in view someone who isn't a sinner. There's those who aren't sinners, and they shouldn't be fraternizing with those who are sinners, right? We know that the only sinless person who have ever lived is who? It's Christ, right? It's Christ. Rather, the sinner in the psalm would be one who practices and normalizes and celebrates that which is wicked. Do we linger there? Do we stand there, right? So no longer are we just passing by, but we've stopped and we're standing. And once we begin to stand with sinners, we find that it's more comfortable to sit, isn't it? The standing gets tiresome. We sit. The psalmist says that the blessed man, the happy man, will not sit with the scornful, right? But if we walk by the way, if we stand by the way, then eventually we will sit by the way. We will recline. We will give ourselves over to that which is ungodly, to that which is sinful, to that which is scornful. Here's another way to put it. Are you comfortable in Babylon? Are you comfortable in Babylon? In a real sense, we should feel uneasy as Christians to a certain extent, right? If we're at ease If we're at peace, it's a good indicator that we're reclining in Babylon, that we're making Babylon our home, and in doing so, our eternal residence. In reality, because Christ is gloriously resurrected and because He has all authority, Babylon will increasingly be eradicated along with those who call it home, those who recline in it. So the blessed man, he, the happy man, he doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, he doesn't sit. There's a, a disgust and a ruthlessness characteristic of his Christian walk. Right? It, he won't even tolerate a hint of sin in his own life. Jeff Williams sent me, one of our deacons sent me a John Piper sermon this past week that talked a lot about being violent with your sin, right? being ruthless with sin, even at the temptation level. And if you're walking by the way of the ungodly, if you're standing in the path of sinners, right, if you're sitting with scoffers, you're not being ruthless with your sin. You're not making war with your sin. You're not fighting your sin at the temptation level. John Owen, I've given you this quote before, but John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will kill you. And so we want to flee from those things that can desensitize us. Those things that we entertain that God hates, and instead, in turn, we should entertain those things that God loves. And so to walk by the way, to stand, to sit, this path of temptation that leads one into sin, leads one into unnecessary temptation. This is the path of misery. Instead, we should take the path of the blessed man. Now, how do we hate our sin? How do we increasingly hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves, right? We've talked about fleeing sin, again, even at the temptation level, but there has to be more to it than that. Look at verses 2 and 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by, again, we see the words of Jeremiah here, don't we? Planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So the second thing, if you're taking notes, thriving in Babylon is delighting in the Lord through knowing his word. Right? Thriving in Babylon is delighting in the Lord through knowing his word. And the psalmist uses that word delight, which is another word that I, I love. But it, it means to cherish or to treasure, right? to find happiness in. And, and what does this blessed man delight in? The law of the Lord, according to the psalmist. Now, the psalmist can certainly have the first five books of the Old Testament in view here, but it's completely appropriate for us to interpret this as all that God loves, right? All that God loves. And where do we find what God loves? In all of Scripture, right? We find it in all of Scripture. And what does this delighting look like? Well, I've mentioned some of this already, but first it looks like hatred for the things that God hates. Again, that's a part of our first point this morning. But delighting in what God loves looks like saturating yourself in His Word that in turn has a transformation on your character by the grace of God according to the power of the Spirit. The psalmist used the word meditate. You've heard me say this before, but that's such a neglected spiritual discipline. We tend to think of meditation as the emptying of your mind. In reality, it's the filling of your mind with the Word of God, quote, day and night. Right? Again, we see that in verse 2 of Psalm 1. In other words, constantly, right? It should be the atmosphere that you live in. It should be the air that you breathe. Matthew Henry said of meditation, he said, to meditate in God's Word is to discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in it with close application of mind and fixedness of thought. We must have constant regard to the Word of God as the rule of our actions in the spring of our comforts, and have it in our thoughts night and day. For this purpose, no time is amiss. Memorization is a good practical aid in this. Somebody who is memorizing Scripture is someone who is meditating on Scripture. If the blessed man, he delights in the law of the Lord, and if he is to meditate on all that God loves, that is, that we see in Scripture. We have to see Scripture as the primary means by which we commune with God. If you want to know the Lord, which again is the the only way that one can thrive in Babylon, that if you want to know the Lord, saturate yourself in His Word. Saturate yourself in His Word. Drink deeply from it. There's no way for you to persevere in this fallen world independent of drinking from the Word of of God. And who is it that is the final word of God? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews, again, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Right? To, to drink from the Word of God is to draw near to the final Word of God, who's the Son of God, who's Christ, again, who is our living water. Any Christian that I've ever seen drift and despair is one who has neglected the Word of God in their lives. Right? A Christian who meditates on the law of the Lord is a Christian who delights in the law of the Lord. And this is the type of Christian that can truly thrive in Babylon. Now, the ungodly, right, they're the opposite of the blessed. Right? Maybe gives the appearance of happiness, the ungodly, but in fact, what awaits there is misery. Right? So they are the opposite of the happy life. They are the opposite of the blessed life. And in fact, we could break this psalm down into two parts. Right? The first part being the blessed life. The second part being the cursed life or the miserable life. And the psalmist concludes with something for us to ponder. Right? So in this contrast, he says, the ungodly are not so. In other words, they are not happy in the Lord. They're not happy in the Lord but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Right? All this wickedness that seems so pervasive, God will just blow it away like hay. Just blow it away. Right? Verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Right? In other words, will not answer to those that are wicked. Right? They don't make the rules. They don't say how God's world works. In verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And the one who is at home in Babylon, right, the one who reclines in his sin, always at ease, never putting to death the deeds of the flesh, right, that person will perish. Their ways will not last forever. They won't endure and the psalmist says in verse 6, in contrast to those who perish, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In other words, the Lord knows who belong to Him. He knows who belong to Him. Psalm 1 concludes, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Right? Who is it that belongs to Him? Right? Those that walk the path of the blessed man. Jesus, speaking of his kingdom, said this, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, going back to Psalm 1-6, the Lord knows the way the righteous. There are those who confess Christ, yet they're at home in Babylon. 
They are those that practice lawlessness, those who walk by the way of the ungodly, those who stand in the path of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful. These are those who claim to be Christians, yet they don't delight in the law of the Lord. And they, along with their kingdom Babylon, will be put away. They'll perish. There, There have been lots of Babylons in history, in addition to the one that we now live in. And God has demonstrated over and over and over just how easy he, easily He can topple Babylon. Right? One day, every Babylon will come to ruin and its residents along with it. And on that day, right, the new heavens and the new earth will be fully realized, finally realized. And the occupants of that new city, the new Jerusalem, will be the happy ones. They will be the blessed ones, right? They were happy in the Lord as they persevered in Babylon, and they will be happy in the Lord for all eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that even in the midst of Babylon, Lord, that we can walk the path of the blessed man, Lord, who hates sin and temptation and who delights in in your word, which means he delights in you. So, Lord, help us to be a people, a church that flee despair, that hate our own sin, that have clarity as it relates to the society in which we live in, yet we're anchored in your unchanging character, Lord, so that we can truly be a happy people. Again, not happy because of circumstances necessarily, God, but happy because you alone are our treasure. And so, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for time in your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the portion of our service where we come to the Lord's table, and if you're a guest with us, we don't require membership for you to be able to partake of the elements. What we do ask is that you are a Christian who is confessing sin, walking in repentance, and resting in Christ alone for your salvation. And so if that, and, and that you have been given a Trinitarian baptism. And so if that's you this morning, we welcome you to the Lord's table. If that's not you, we ask that you would just remain seated. This is a meal for God's people. Uh, but the elders and I would love, if you would like to talk more about the gospel, uh, we would love to talk with you after the service. But elders, you can go ahead and find your way to the uh, elements. And, uh, and I'm going to read our devotion. And just by way of reminder, the wine is on the inner ring. The grape juice is on the outer ring. But our devotion this morning is titled, A Feast in Babylon. Babylon will be transformed into something different, something completely new. And this meal that we have every Lord's Day reminds us of this. The bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus, has a transforming effect on us, and that means that it will transform our world. How do we know this? We know this because the one we feast on not only died, but he rose again, and in his rising, he received the nations as his inheritance, Psalm 2, 7 to 12. Furthermore, he told us to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6, 10. And before he ascended, he told us that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. Babylon will fall, 
It has been falling since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and it will definitively fall when he returns to make everything new. The bread and the wine teach us that pagan empires topple at the feet of King Jesus, who gave his life to set things right, to undo the curse. So as we've considered our current living in Babylon, remember at the same time that Christ has conquered. As we've considered our sinful contributions in Babylon, remember the blood of Christ was shed for your sins. So take this meal and forsake sin and forsake despair and put your trust in the ruling, reigning King Jesus and do so this morning with a heart of gratitude to our triune God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And as you come, you can go ahead and stand, begin to make your way. We will remind you that Christ is for you. is for you. Christ is for you, my brother. Christ is for you, my brother. Amen. All right. Biblical grounding for this practice, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26, where I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
verses 25 and 26. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, thank you again for just the reminder of the sufficiency of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Christ in us, Lord. We thank you that we are a people that are reconciled to you. And Lord, help us to remember that and help us to live in light of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me, we will recite our common creed together. The Apostles' Creed is on page 7 in your worship guide. It's also up here on the screen. And then we'll sing the doxology. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator.